Hello, and welcome to The Awardist from Entertainment Weekly. We're taking you inside this year's best contenders for the industry's biggest awards. I'm Shana Naomi Crockmall. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, EW's Awardist columnist, David Canfield. Hi, David. Hey, Shana. Hello. And we also have EW's Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Heyman. Hi, guys. Hey, J.D. Hello. Can't shake me. <laughs> Here we are. Post-SAG Awards. Post-SAG Awards. Back in the chair. Uh, so this is obviously part of our overall comprehensive coverage in the magazine on EW.com. Um, in this podcast, on video, anywhere you can find EW. We are still talking about awards. We're getting down to the end of the season. Uh, we talked a little bit with JoJo Rabbit star Thomason McKenzie uh, last week, and this week we're gonna talk about the SAG Awards, what that means potentially for the Oscars, the Producers Guild Awards, um, and we it kind of tag team a conversation. David Yu and Joey Nolfi, who was on our podcast last week, talked to Tom Hanks and director Marielle Heller from A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom Hanks is nominated for Best Supporting Actor for his role as Fred Rogers for the Oscars. Correct. He did not win at the SAG Awards. No. Um, but was genial as always every time they cut to him. I would had say. a great moment Fair? at the beginning of the show too. Yes, yes. Always a good sport and a fun audience member, yeah, right? definitely. Let's talk about the SAG Awards. Let's what, um, JD, what were your overall impressions, big takeaways? Well, I mean, I have sort of two impressions. One is I feel like we're on this frog march to inevitability in most of the categories, in the major acting categories, it feels pretty much resolved. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for me to imagine any upsets or surprises. I think the dynamic is pretty firmly set. It's been ratified by every other um, body that does awards predictions, or awards gives awards rather. I think we've been way out in front on the predictions. But um, so I don't see anything changing in the movie acting categories for the biggest movie awards of the year, which are the Academy Awards. And that means that I think you'll see Brad Pitt up there. I think you'll say uh, see uh, Renee Zellweger up there. I think you'll see Laura Dern up there and I think you'll see Joaquin Phoenix up there. So that that hasn't changed. I think then the surprising little bit of the weekend, both out of PGA and, and SAG, was just the you know, the dynamic in Best Picture, which I think is is the fascinating race. It's right? an exciting race. Yeah. And it's sort of, it's more exciting than it was a week ago. Yes. I, uh, that definitely. I totally agree. In a way that I think we thought when we were even just talking about this last week, we were like, oh, maybe all of these categories yeah. seem pretty set. Yes. David, what's your take on Best Picture? Um, well, we were all in the room at the SAG Awards, and basically there's this moment when every cast introduces their nominated film. And when the Parasite actors got on that stage, introduced that movie, and all of the actors in the room stood up yeah. to applaud it, I had this thought where if this does not win, this is this is bizarre. It, it suddenly became a front runner. They were the rock stars of that room. Were, I mean, that was like a on the lengthy circuit. ovation. It delayed. You could tell there was like that panicked producer moment of like everyone being like, "Okay, okay, everyone sit down. We got to get to like what we're doing on TV here." And people just kept clapping. It was such a palpable indication of how much love for there is for this movie. Mm-hmm. And it did win Best Ensemble. It was a surprise. The room it, uh, did lose its mind. We were all sort of saying this category can go in a lot of different directions, but Once Upon a Time in Hollywood seemed like the front runner yeah. at the very least. And the fact that Parasite could do this with a body that tends to skew more mainstream, more broad, movies like Hidden Figures winning, Black Panther, is huge. And it shows that it can drum up that 
constituency needed to win Best Picture. I think that's the fascinating bit about it, because if you think about the Screen Actors Guild, this really is the hometown crowd. This is exactly. a huge constituency within the Academy voting block. And if actors are willing to vote for Parasite, um, I think it means that, um, you know, may mean real trouble for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I, I sort of feel like, you know, there's a couple scenarios um, that I could see happening. One is this movie is just surging and unstoppable and it's just met its moment and it's going to happen. Uh, the other is that 1917, which I sort of in my mind felt was sort of neck and neck for the, this, mm -hmm. this award with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, will um, edge out the competition because Parasite will take enough votes away from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is all very speculative. I have no science or data backing this up, but um, it felt like there was a real shift, mm -hmm. a shift away from what I thought was the expected. It's kind of like when we were talking about Jennifer Lopez in a little way, in that, you know, there was this sort of thing, well, Jennifer Lopez should win a Golden Globe because she's a Golden Globe kind of person. Yeah. And, and I was sort of thinking that, oh, Once Upon a Time should win because it's, a, it's an Oscar kind of movie, but maybe not. And I'm fascinated by that. I love that. For both, I mean, especially for the cast of Parasite, I think what was exciting about seeing a body of actors honor them is that few, a handful, but like few of the actors in that room have worked with any of those actors. Right. Exactly. Right. It was like, it was not that sort of like, oh, we've all like, who doesn't want to be in a movie with Brad Pitt? Like who wouldn't enjoy that experience or whatever, right? Like these are actors who are really looking at that performance and saying, you guys did great this is amazing, this isn't just about the director, it's not just about other ways that this film might get honored, the acting is stellar and we want to give you that honor. And that was unusual and unexpected, I mean, really deserved, but exciting to watch. And people were excited that they won. There was like that nice sort of ratification. There was not that weirdness in the room of like, wait, really? Who did, like who yeah. who here voted for that? Which we saw on the TV side a little bit, I yeah. think, when Maisel won. Mm -hmm. When like even the cast of Maisel was like, whoa, what's happening? We all thought that was going to be Fleabag. Not true on the film side. On the film side, it was like, okay, cool. I'm not sure who did this, but we're all, everyone seems pretty excited about it. But actually, the TV side going for Maisel over Fleabag, Maisel is the more hometown show. Yep. Or another one I had predicted Sam Rockwell winning Best Actor in Limited Series over Jarell Jerome who won the Emmy and the Critics' Choice Award because this body is not going to know Jarell Jerome as well and they do vote that way. Mm -hmm. Sam Rockwell has won an Oscar. He mm -hmm. is a veteran actor, character actor for a long time. That's how they tend to vote. And the fact that they didn't do that in Best Ensemble, where you have Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where you have even something like Jojo Rabbit, which is a lot of great longtime actors, it, it signifies that this movie has resonated in this industry in a really significant way. Um, you were talking about 1917, and that won the night before at the Producers Guild Awards, which is a pretty strong predictor for Best Picture. I think Sam Mendes is definitely gonna win Directors Guild, which is a pretty potent combo, in my view, that's your that's your best picture. Battle yeah, at this point. I think I think that's right. I I think that it's lining up. If you look across the constituencies for 1917 and sort of the depth of all of the people who who appreciate filmmaking and are voting on that, I think what's interesting about Parasite is that it was a broadly wildly entertaining movie, whether you spoke Korean or not, and almost in the same way that um, Get Out was, or um, you know, movies that sort of you know strike a chord and sort of bust out of what you think it may be a genre space in the, in the domestic marketplace. And so I'm very interested to see how that does. And, y you know, as you both said, it is just fascinating to see 
I think they must they must have decided as sort of a block. We're going to give Brad this award because he is best supporting it. That is our Once Upon a Time in Hollywood yeah. play, and we're going to give this movie that we all enjoyed something out of this show mm -hmm. and that's what they did and you get a reward for, i mean i was talking about how like i want brad to win these things like at this point literally just for the speeches yes speeches like are great. this new like newly sober brad acceptance speech award season is killing it it's amazing like he's just easy and charming and yeah. grateful and then you get to add the jennifer aniston of it all <laughs> into it as an right. added bonus and it was like ah this is so entertaining in a like nicely reassuring lightly yeah. easy kind of way so that was good i think you know if you think about it that's your nostalgia play right like you're yep. getting to see <laughs> brad and jen win awards and frankly, for doing some of the best work they've ever done. Definitely. Um, so it's deserved. And they've kind of reached this status like Tom Hanks of when you get uh, Brad up there, you're thinking about Henry Fonda, Tom Hanks, you know, these kinds of actors that, you know, are just beloved. Um, and, you know, I think that's part of it, too. He's just part of the... Uh, What's the word? He's part of the, um, you know, he's, he's in the pro tour now, yeah. you know, he's <laughs> up there. <laughs> yeah. Shana, you love a good campaign speech. I do. And I have to say, this ceremony particularly, everyone, I felt like, hit it out of the park. Even Joaquin. Even I Joaquin. Felt like, really surprisingly coherent. Like, I, I, I couldn't figure gracious. out. It was, yeah, it was like I, I think JD, you were tweeting about this. It was like he's decided he wants to be in this race. Yeah. <laughs> like he, which is, I mean, was a little bit of a. I mean, I don't think it was a question mark, but like, would he show it? Like, would we be able to tell? He was uncomfortable. Would he just beginning. keep walking out of interviews? Like, what was going to happen? Right. And that was really the first, I think, really widely seen moment that it was like he is both cap like obviously an accomplished actor capable of being gracious and coherent in his victory right. and that I think was just frankly something we had not seen from him this award season I think we're all more used to seeing Joaquin in a kind of slightly unhinged is he kidding or is he not kidding is this an actor is this a shtick or is this for a behind the scenes documentary right. or is this real and he was actually genuinely heartfelt mm -hmm. in a way that was both nice to see him recognize his peers and also seemed a little more introspective um, especially in comparison to the Golden Globe speech. Yes. That was good. Laura Dern is always nails it. Yeah, I wonder with some of these actors too, because there's such a dimension now to this conversation that it's ongoing and a little bit more three-dimensional than in the past where you're having podcast conversations like the one we're having when you're an actor. Um, you're not just hitting the red carpet and giving three answers, which I think is deadening. And for somebody like him to be standing at this moment and realizing this is this is going to happen, this is a reality, um, he knows, I think, to be grateful and also that the only way that it isn't going to be his is if he's not. And it's a wonderful honor to be recognized in that in that way. I was blown away like you both were by the speeches. Yeah. Um, they all had a certain quality of um, survival in them and retrospection and just sort of thinking about how they got to this place. and. All of them, all the big winners, you know, really reflected on their lives as actors, which are pretty um, struggle-filled lives, unhappy lives for the most part, until you get to this rare point, you know, living out of your car or working at, you know, Chick-fil-A or whatever it is, is part of 
all of I their stories. Let, I feel like SAG always gives the best. You always yeah, get the best because, speeches at SAG because they feel there's fewer awards, even though it's a shorter show, so it's a little less hurried. Mm -hmm. There's a little less like we're going to play you off, and it's more of a polite reminder, like please, please be respectful and take you know your allotted time and no more in a very like actorly kind of way. The yeah. directions that they gave even during commercials were very like gentle direction. Um, and you feel like it just feels they know that they're there in a group of their peers and it, it it has a really different vibe to it. It's like the nerdiest of them. <laughs> yes. It's totally like the drama club awards. Yeah. And but I think is is nice for that. As even even in a year when those main acting categories are relatively stable. Yeah. I mean, it's like what more can Laura Dern say on an award stage? She had the Big Little Lies tour. She's had the Marriage Story tour, and then before she gets to this stage, she gets to hug her father, and it's such a poignant moment and yes. it completely changes the energy of I that entire... I liked what she said about like being raised in a community of actors. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, citing her parents specifically, um, Jennifer Aniston talking about her first job and really visibly moved when she won. That was quite a moment, I thought, when Jennifer Aniston's name was announced. Um, it's just nice to see them actually get to reflect a little bit on their industry and their peers and get a chance to say thank you to those that they've come up with. Mm -hmm. They all also, I mean, this generation of actors grew up at a particularly shaggy time in Hollywood. Um, yeah. Laura Dern and Joaquin Phoenix and uh, Leo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, you know, they, they grew up in this weird moment in LA, which was, you know, um, probably the last time when you could have kind of a real life and, you know, w you know live on sort of the m edge of poverty and do this. And, um, and I think, there's something really, like I said, profoundly nostalgic about listening to them talk about their their struggle. I don't yeah. know. I like it too, like you were saying, Shana, it is like the Drama Club Awards. It's and um, <laughs> uh, I don't know how that resonates with the broadest popular audience, but it does help that Brad and uh, Jen uh, held hands for five seconds. <laughs> and there's a lot of overlap in that acting category in particular for the voters for the Definitely. Oscars. Let's go back for a second though to talk about the Producers Guild Awards mm -hmm. a little bit more in 1917. One thing I was thinking of, and honestly even I would say holding ourselves accountable in this, I think there was a lot of conversation about the cast of 1917 and the cast of Parasite and how none of those actors really got as much time and individual attention on the circuit yes. as a lot of their other peers did. Partly because of, t I think in 1917's case because of time um, that like you know George McKay was not out on that circuit doing interviews as early and he, unlike Sam Mendes who I think all of us were like okay I guess we can kind of like take a little bit of a leap yeah. of faith with Sam Mendes because we don't expect him to make a bad movie it's not like we knew who George McKay <laughs> was necessarily in that way and that we were like oh he's definitely gonna be a lock for a best actor nod and on the Parasite side I think the combination of language and not having seen them in American film so much with the you know some exceptions I think contributed to just like they didn't get as much time and attention and press and how much do you think that contributed to them not being in the actor categories? Yeah it's interesting because it's the second year in a row that the SAG winner did not have any of its actors nominated for Oscars. Black Panther last year. Um, Parasite's an interesting case because I did feel like Song Kang-ho was getting a bit of momentum in supporting actor. He's such a well-known Korean actor it just seemed like, unlike Roma last year, which had a huge Netflix machine behind it, there just wasn't mm -hmm. the campaign to get such an unknown actor in the United States into a very, very competitive acting race. On the male side, both in lead and supporting, it was 
really, really Or to try to sort of break a new young woman into well, that same yes, conversation. Yeah. And it's interesting, with 1917, um, we had talked about George McKay. We'd also talked about Paul Walter Hauser for um, Richard Jewell. Mm-hmm. I watched those performances, and I thought they were definitely going to figure in at least, but they so many contenders had already emerged that they just could not find their way into that five. And that's what happens. 1917 has obviously benefited from the late-breaking momentum, but at the same time, it did take a little bit longer for it to get off the ground. Yeah, and I think, you know, what you're seeing also is an intentional choice by the studios in terms of where they're going to put their eggs and what basket. Correct. And um, with 1917, I think there was just no question that they were going to go for broke on the on, on director and on, on picture mm-hmm. and that the two relatively unknown young men in the film were just not going to be where they were going to invest. Um, I think for George in particular, this is a star-making turn. He is that movie and he's in every frame um, and he's spectacularly good in it. Um, I, I think there is a cultural bias also. I think if you look at The Awakening, too, there were some great performances out of that. I'm sorry, did I say that right? I said the wrong name. Um, the Farewell. The Farewell. Awakening <laughs> I made up. I was like, wow, the we're the really Awakening going back. by Kate Chopin. <laughs> sure. We're going to talk about that. No, my daughter is reading The Awakening by Kate Chopin, so I was thinking about it. No, The Farewell is the other, the other example there. And I think that, as you said, uh, David, there was a huge Netflix campaign backing Roma. Um, and so they really decided they were going to put, I mean, they must have, they put in two actresses and mm-hmm. um, and director and film. So I, I think um, I think in this case, there was just an intention on the part of the studio to just really be um, discreet in its choices in, in both cases and, in, in, and people lose out in the politics of that. Uh, Hauser was, a f- I mean, you say what you will about that film. Correct. Um, he was... <laughs> terrific in that movie and um, you know got I uh, maybe he got swamped into a, a little bit of the controversy and got lost in that shuffle but he's obviously an actor to watch mm-hmm. where I think it's particularly more um, perhaps challenging is when you do have a foreign actor this may be the one shot that they will have to get a nomination so it is a bit unfortunate um, in the case of um, Parasite because mm-hmm. that was a that was a piece of acted work and I think uh, 1917, you could argue, was so filmmaking driven that, you know, it's understandable that they might have favored um, Mendez and sort of technical awards over an acting performance, but um, it's hard to look at Parasite and not be transported by some of those performances. Yeah, and I will say 1917 didn't lose any ground mm-hmm. this weekend. No. It was not going to be a SAG player, it's not an ensemble play. The only place it needed to win, it did win. Parasite did not win PGA, it wasn't favored there, but it wasn't favored at SAG either. So. If I were looking at going into this final stretch, going into voting, Parasite gets a huge bump from just the visibility of this win, but 1917 looks to me like a bit of an industry favorite. Uh, and, and a movie that checks a lot of craft boxes, which with the Academy is very important, and seems pretty clearly in line for director, I think. I agree. I like you over Parasite. Yeah, I mean, if this parasite surge never ends, it could definitely win both. I did appreciate that Bong was like the best meme of the SAG Awards. Like his just sheer enthusiasm, joy joy and pride in that cast for their cast sake was was outstanding. Not that I think anyone's 
at the academy is voting based on <laughs> memes. I feel like it might be the opposite. Although, if any, if any of the groups, the directors, I can almost see would would favor him for that. At every event I've gone to, everyone, <laughs> he, he is the rock everyone star. wants to talk. To Absolutely. Him. And if you look at recent history, the academy has been pretty interesting in its choice of directors. It's, mm -hmm. It certainly has not been confined to holding a U.S. passport. I mean, they, they've they've been mm -hmm. very. Um, appreciative of foreign directors so it, maybe it'll split between yeah, I mean, picture for 1917 and director could be I mean it is interesting 1917 it's you know I, I kept talking about once upon a time is this nostalgic work and um, uh, in some ways uh, 1917 is also deeply evocative of a different kind of Hollywood it's so ambitious it, it's 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 like a great Attenborough or David Lean kind of movie in the sort of scope of it, even though it's a, essentially a two-hander or even a one-hander, right? But it's just the the canvas is so great, the the technical virtuosity is so obvious. Um, it has like quiet moments, but yeah. also giant moments, which I feel like is always still oh, also good, in that a kind good of thing. Spot. The old Oscar jujitsu, yeah. you know, <laughs> a couple yeah. moments of quiet, and then let's let's run against five hundred extras charging you, and then back to a nice quiet moment with a baby. Yeah, with yeah. a baby. There's a baby <laughs> and a French woman. So yeah. happy to go wrong. Yes. Yeah, and a singing man, and a singing man. Do you feel like we have reached the end of the road for the Irishman? Yeah, this one is... Right? It feels kind of... I, I remember I said months ago, I, it didn't feel like the kind of movie that would go all the way. I changed my mind on that, and now I'm back where I was <laughs> at the very beginning. Um, yeah, I don't see it surprising at this point. If, it, if there is a movie that overtakes these two, I still think it's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think there's more affection for it. I think The Irishman's very admired, but I don't think it's that widely loved of a movie, and I think Robert De Niro's inability to crack the best actor five consistently was actually an indication of people's broader feelings about the movie because people tend to v check a lot of boxes at the same time uh, and he never figured in as we thought he would and the same is true for the movie. I think it's interesting like this is sort of a trust your gut kind of film and, uh, and mm -hmm. sometimes I think we overthink how voters think and they are audiences too and they have an authentic response to this the work and um, this just didn't hit with anybody that I know. Like totally I mean, agree. outside of the um, outside of the studio, and they're very passionate about it. And 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 of course, these people are legends, and we love them. But um, it felt soft from the beginning. Um, it it didn't it didn't seem to sweep people away with enthusiasm. And I. Um, I think we're all kind of not surprised, you know, in the I'm end, not. you know, it just wasn't the movie that we wanted it to be. And in fact, all the good writing about it, and particularly out of New York Film Critics Circle and everything, it's like they were writing about a movie they wanted, but I don't think that was the movie they saw. And I almost wonder if they, there was a certain point in Netflix's campaign where it was all Irishmen all the time. And I wonder if something like Marriage Story which has is both more divisive and more loved. I think yeah. it's safe to say. Mm -hmm. if, mm -hmm. if they really push that a little bit further, I think Adam Driver faded a little bit more from Best Actor than I thought he would. And Noah Baumbach, I think, should be more of a player in screenplay than he seems to be at this point. Uh, Irishman became the real overwhelming focus of Netflix's award season, and it's very possible it will win nothing. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I think that's right. And I think the Netflix of it all, which I sometimes you know, take the risk of tweeting about is 
um, is the question. Okay, you can just say it here. Yeah, <laughs> it's all safe. Safe no, space. No, no one, one, no one will know. It'll but I, I do think that we're looking at a very traditional body, right? And we have all embraced streaming, and we know it's the future. But I, I, do, um, I do think that Netflix probably pays a little tax. Uh, because mm -hmm. it is so dominant in the Hollywood ecosystem now. And there is, I think, amongst uh, the voters, a, some, some negative reaction to their resources, their campaigns, um, their ubiquity. And I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that I think they have to contend with that. And um, uh, I think they get punished a little bit in this cycle. I think, uh, I think Marriage Story definitely got punished a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, and Irishmen did too, and and I um, I don't know what the sol solve for that is. I think everybody will catch up to where they are and a little you know be habituated to it. But I think a lot of these voting blocks are like, wait, what? Why is this? Why are we going to reward them for this? Mm -hmm. And uh, you know I think that will change as everybody gets into the game in a little different way. Um, but I think that's kind of what happened to both those movies. Laura Dern was just unavoidable. She had about the most quintessential supporting actress moment. I feel bad for Merritt Weaver, who had a great little moment too, but Julie Laura Haggerty, too. Uh, Julie Haggerty, the great Julie Haggerty, but th that movie was a great film. It was a challenging film, and um, I, I unreservedly loved it. Some people didn't, but you had a strong reaction to it. I didn't even love it. it, and Laura Dern was still my favorite thing about yeah. it. Yeah, well, she like, had the moment, right? Hands down, yeah. You walked out of there knowing, yeah. oh, that's an, a best supporting actress. Two, there was two moments, like that and Adam Driver singing at the end, yeah. were the two moments where I was like, okay, I really profoundly did not feel much of anything about that film, but those two things, those two moments, I felt a lot for in a way that sort of like averaged out to an okay. <laughs> um, one other thing about SAG Awards that David and I were talking about as we were watching it happen is it was until we got to Parasite, all white winners, with the exception of a handful of the cast members of Avengers who won for stunt cast ensemble. Which isn't so, televised. Which isn't televised. Um, and like truly only Parasite represented any of the really amazing storytelling we've seen or the acting that we've seen from non-white actors this year. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious because I feel like depending if Parasite doesn't win Best Picture or doesn't win Best Director, how likely it is we'll essentially truly see a complete white Oscars. Um, definitely possible. The thing I was more surprised about on the TV on the SAG side was the TV awards because those casts normally are at least a little diverse, and in this case, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel <laughs> and um, The Crown are absolutely 100% not. Some people from the north of England are in <laughs> The Crown, and so there Thank may be a Scottish actor me. or two yes. as well. That was the degree of um, diversity we saw. I that. think that, in a way, Parasite winning kept those headlines bubbling, but not yeah, yeah. surfacing. Saved them uh, a little bit there. And we know Oscar voters do not like to vote politically. If anything, Green Book was a vote in the other direction. Uh, so I don't know that it will have much impact, but it's just a reminder that this year has reinforced that this industry still has a long way to go. And I really saw that at the SAG Awards. You know, when you're talking about this being such a year for career achievements in a lot of ways, and you think about Hollywood's history, you have to ask what that really means in a, in a deeper sense. True. And, uh, you know, we're in this moment, I think, across the culture, um, not just in Hollywood, which is obviously just a reflection of what we're wrestling with, um, where you're going to have, I think, for several years, a kind of back and forth. Um, you'll make uh, progress, and then there'll be a reversal. 
And I think this crosses ideological lines in Hollywood because I think many good liberals in the Oscar voting block are in some ways just as reactionary in their voting patterns when they get in there. And I think in some ways Twitter is not our friend in that some people uh, go into a defensive crouch and say, you know what? I love Brad Pitt and I am voting for Brad Pitt. And that's happening too. Um, at the same time. Um, and that's why you're getting this, these kinds of outcomes aside from, I think, Greta Gerwig, who has a very good shot at adapted screenplay. You know, I think um, you're seeing that in, in the choices. Um, and so it's two steps forward, or let's say a half a step forward and two steps back and a half a step forward and then another three steps back. So um, it's gonna be a while still. I think, you know, there's no headline that's gonna be written about the transformation of Hollywood for a few years, but it is, it, it doesn't mean it's not happening, you know? I think it is happening, um, but I think we're all gonna have to get ourselves uh, habituated to, to reversals as well as gains um, in terms of the nominating. Um, it is surprising to me um, the, the sort of, um, the, the lily whiteness of the slates. And I think with the, with the SAG Awards, the almost traditional Emmy Awardsiness of the TV mm. nominations, where it felt like, if the sh Maisel at this point could be on NBC, it doesn't feel like it's a it's a trans you know it's we not were the in the cool choice. yeah it's not the cool choice. It's like when Julie Louis Dreyfus would win 17 million Emmys, who we love and we think is great, you know, or whatever big show or modern I, I should say Modern Family was the big juggernaut for decades. And I sort of feel television is settling into some of its old patterns. In Even terms yeah, of it's like the disruption mm -hmm. of totally. streamers has flattened. Uh, not always. I mean, I think Fleabag is a great example. Like, not something you could run on network television Ever. by any yep. stretch. Even and cable. And dominated like, the you know, and, dom and did very, very well. So I think there is still some of that. But I agree that it hasn't quite... Even, it, like, we look at how broadcast shows aren't winning, but it's not always because the most innovative, most disruptive, most sh shocking kind of things are winning instead. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about an industry where people, by and large, still work in the traditional industry who are making these votes. And uh, their taste may be great, and I think that they often have great taste, but there is people are conflicted about a lot of this change and that's reflected sometimes in their voting. Um, I don't, again, I don't think this is necessarily an ID lot. This isn't Fox News we're talking about, but we, we have a lot of people who are unsure about the future and a, a show like a Fleabag can have a, a, a huge wave of success. And then you might see something like this where people are like, you know what, they've got enough. Yeah, I'm, go I'm going to <laughs> yeah. the Upper West Side and be comfortable. You That's know? what I do feel like, pa I mean, Parasite is by far the most disruptive yeah. of the films of this year, both because it has totally. a less traditional distribution strategy, like, you know, and, and obviously because it is not in English. Um, so I'm, it'll be curious. Like in general, I would not say this award season has been particularly innovative. <laughs> But uh, I think we'll kind of see what well, happens with that. That's the one for us, right? And yeah. it's also wildly entertaining. Yeah, I mean, at least it's exciting. Like, oh, Roma it's was yeah. many things, but I would never have called it wildly entertaining. <laughs> and I think, I think that uh, Parasite. You want to go back and see Roma I've multiple times. No, here's no. the thing I've always wondered, and I'm going to ask this question till the day I die. You have two housekeepers, and yet you can't keep on top of the dog poop on the driveway. How is this <laughs> happening? How, how is it's there so much dog poop? We need to have poop? Alfonso on as our next. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I'm going to grill him about question. that. But in general, I think entertaining 
um, is good in films. Whereas like, the deep questions <laughs> of Parasite are so complex. Yes. And so. It's nice it's an exciting race though. Um, that's not always the case. Yeah. No, no. Yeah, I think this was a little late breaking excitement for yeah. the Oscars, which I'm, I am glad for. Uh, all right, let's, we have the Grammys coming this weekend. So mm. a brief respite from the awards of it all, even though we'll continue to see some other guild and some other stuff um, continue to come through. Uh, we, we, the editors honored Parasite yep. and Jojo Rabbit, that organization, which is also interesting and a good sign to see. Um, for Grammys, there's a handful of film adjacent or overlapping categories. Um, we talked about them when they were nominated, but I'm curious if anyone has any thoughts about who's going to win these. So. Uh, best compilation soundtrack for visual media, which just basically means exactly what it's saying. We have The Lion King, um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Rocket Man, uh, Spider Man into the Spider Verse, A Star is Born, <laughs> which is still eligible. Isn't all that of crazy? You mentioned some of these yeah. films you're mentioning. I think, wait, that came out this year? Is that yeah. possible? This, we're still talking about Spider Man into the Spider Verse? Oh, yeah. I mean, great. It was a great, <laughs> great. It was great. Almost makes more sense to keep talking about that than Star is Born, as oh, much as yeah. I enjoyed the music that, from that, too, that which literally seems like year and a so half out, long too. ago. It was a long and time ago. And it was ago. eligible. Some of it was eligible for last year's Grammys, which is why it's extra confusing. Um, Bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> any, I mean, I'm, I don't have any strong thoughts about which of these is really going to pop through. This is the one that goes to the music supervisor. So yeah. this is really more about kind of like overall the album the soundtrack album. Then for score, we have Avengers Endgame, The Lion King, the last season of Game of Thrones, Chernobyl, which has been a sort of like surprise, really strong contender An across another, lots of awards. Another this year. project that I thought came out 10 years ago, as good as it was, it yes. feels like. That <laughs> is um, more recent. Mary though. Poppins Returns. So that's just Talk about a long time. Ago. Oh wow! I know <laughs> on the compass, it really wasn't as long as some of these. But yes. by the way, these were all great and fun. All I enjoyed great them all. Scores. I'm just it just felt like yeah. a while ago. We'll be interesting to see what comes and such a mix because that's, I mean, to have like Game of Thrones and Avengers in the same category. And it's interesting that Chernobyl's composer is the same as uh, she also composed Joker, and oh, she's the front runner in that. Good race. point. However, Joker is not nominated. I have no here. idea how to say her last name. Do you? Uh, I want to from a Nordic land. <laughs> Correct. Yes, a rare. Um, it, yes, that's that would be interesting if she wins at the Grammys. It, and then it's wins kind of nice that Joker. she is going to be one of, mm -hmm. I think, a couple of wins for Joker. Yeah. Uh, because It'd that be category. I don't know if a woman has won it. Certainly not recently. I believe no. <laughs> I don't think so. And On the uh, Oscar side, yeah. Yeah, and the thing that's interesting, of course, about that score is it's. I mean, she does film scoring. I think the art of what she does is that she's more than deserving of that award. Yeah. Um, and I think for the general audience, uh, it doesn't really understand the difference between a soundtrack and a film score, and the art that goes into uh, creating a film score like that is. Um, I hope she does get recognized for that work because. You know, while I felt very conflicted about Joker and still do, I had no conflict about the music. I thought it was affecting. Um, you know, I mean, these yeah. these categories are. <laughs> and then what there's a Songwriters say? Award, too. So we've got Randy Newman for The Ballad of the Lonesome Cowboy from Toy Story 4, a song from a, from a Dolly Parton and Linda Perry song from Dumplin'. Um, I'll Never Love Again from Star is Born, the Beyonce song Spirit from Lion King, uh, the Tom York song from Suspiria. That's a Spirit um, came out a long time ago. I know, and ago. I didn't even realize when we were talking this before, but like weirdly the song from Rocket Man is not in this category. So Bernie and Elton are not nominated in this so category. So they're not nominated for their but original Taren song. Karen Edgerton is nominated for the performance of all the songs on the album. Um, wow, well. So, <laughs> 
here you go. It's, well, it is, it'll be, an, and whether any of these make the telecast that is always very long and very performance packed, hard to tell. It's hard to say, because this is one where they actually have a lot of really good people performing who do that always. for a living. Um, That'll be Sunday. Sunday. We'll have complete it, coverage on EW.com and on our socials, so you can follow along there. And also, Shana, obviously, in the midst of a huge controversy for the Recording Academy. Yes. So talk about the yes. Times meeting the the award show moment. So yep. that's going to be an interesting night. I don't, you know, I don't know how you guys feel about these, but you know, I it, it's hard for me to focus on any of them. I'd love to see Rocket Man get some recognition. It it's not going to get any um, of the top line recognition, so it should get something for the music and certainly for um, Taryn's performance of those songs, which was great. I also thought, frankly, that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood had an incredible sort of soundtrack, and really well done. People have talked about it. I do feel mm -hmm. like it's a, it's a sleeper there. Mm -hmm. It'll be interesting to see if Beyonce. Yeah. How can you say no to Beyonce? The Oscars did. Yeah. Yeah. So that It'll will be interesting. Can right. she? Well, it's a hometown crowd. Maybe the Grammy people will pull yeah. for Beyonce. <laughs> Grammys on Sunday. And uh, before that, you are both headed off to Sundance. Correct. Yes. Anything you want to tell us about? I know you've been working, David, on some preview coverage. Mm -hmm. JD, you're going to be moderating some panels. Or you both are some panels that we're doing there in partnership with NRDC. Yep. What should? What are you most excited about? for Sundance, what do you think we'll be talking about next year on the awardist that is going to first? Sorry, just jump right into <laughs> oh the wow. hard question. 2021. Right now, your predictions game. I'm we'll gonna go take. with Chernobyl. <laughs> <laughs> Great what prediction. The, what that you're hoping to see in Sundance do you think might be? Or just what are you most excited about? Um, an actress I've been a fan of for a long time, Amy Ryan, mm. uh, who was an Oscar nominee a long time ago for Gone Baby Gone. For She's had a couple scenes in that movie, but it was enough to get her into that category. She is, has a very rare leading role in a film called Lost Girls, which is like a solid true crime drama, but she is, uh, spoiling that I've seen it, she's spectacular in it. Um, I thought she was very good, yeah. I saw that too. It was, she was, and I think for people who only know her from like The Office, right. or from her like more comedic roles, mm -hmm. will be very like blown away by how compelling and haunting and, and committed in that sort of like, I don't know what is like a, Leaker Aaron Brockovich sort of way. Um, yeah, it's a, it's it's deservedly. a it's a heavy movie. Yep. I think Sundance is such a great festival for discovery. Uh, I already have my schedule mapped out, and I'm going to be running around Park City for five days. Uh, so I don't I don't know what we'll be talking about, but I think it's safe to say there's always a couple big docs that yeah. come out that Netflix is obviously now really strongly in the game on. Um, the Obamas are producing one. Uh, there's other bigger stars going. Taylor Swift. Taylor talk. Swift. Uh, will be there. Julie Louis-Dreyfus will be there for her first post-Veep project uh, downhill. Uh, JD, I believe you're moderating a panel. Yeah, with her. Um, and she's amazing. And downhill's obviously a you know it's a redo of a of Force a majeure. Um, a great movie f out of Danish, Is Swedish. Swedish. I'm sorry, Nordic lands. Um, They're all over I, this podcast. Um, I, it, truly, they are. <laughs> Nordic week. Uh, it is Nordic week. We're all wearing our, our, our Icelandic sweaters. <laughs> um, wish you could see them. I, you know, Unscripted is really where I see um, Sundance becoming a new kind of festival. We are in this golden age of, of, of documentaries. Um, we seldom have a chance to talk about. And, um, you know, everyone's in that game now. Um, Plan B, a, a big documentary yeah. force. Um, uh, the Obamas, um, uh, you know, we see Taylor Swift's doing a documentary. Obviously, the big Russell Simmons documentary. Oh that yeah, we of course. Covered um, Hillary mm -hmm. documentary too. The Hillary documentary, and I, 
you know, this is, it's sort of like analogous to what's happening in audio is that there's a real interest in this form and streaming has really opened it up in a way that we should all feel great about because these were movies that, you know, it, you know, just couldn't find an audience in the mm -hmm. before times mm -hmm. and now can. So I sort of I focus. Anecdotally, like people really watch documentaries on Netflix yeah. in particular. They do. Right? Like quite like maybe I just have super nerdy friends and that's great also. But I feel like even even folks who I know who I maybe wouldn't expect spend their Saturdays watching documentaries watch documentaries on Netflix constantly. It's felt I like think a there's game it's been a nice like sort of evolution of like whatever the sort of like watching true life documentaries on MTV as like people have it oh oh I can watch this documentary about this thing I can learn this which is exciting it is the um, glass half full side of reality you know which <laughs> is to say yeah um, you yeah. know they're not all about toxic people that you don't want to you know date um, <laughs> there there there's something that's happened in the culture and this I think and David can speak to this is true in publishing of books as well um, people are interested in real-life stories and um, amazing stories and documentaries have really benefited from that and that uh, companies like Netflix have been able to um, really create something special out of that and you know that's that's um, a real renaissance so that's what I look at when I go to Sundance I think I, I, I scripted I mean you know I think back in the um, in the 90s when Sundance really became a hot thing it was the place for indie films um, I don't know. Maybe there's a Little Miss Sunshine or um, a Sex, Lies, and Videotape that I haven't seen coming out of Sundance. But in some ways, I, I think so much energy now is around documentaries. So that's where I think. But there are some great things. Downhill, I can't wait to see. I just love Will Ferrell and Julie Louis-Dreyfus, Louis so I'm so excited for I that. I would say there's usually one narrative breakout. Mm -hmm. The Farewell uh, last year. Was the, the Big Sick a Sundance The film? Big Sick was mm -hmm. Sundance. Yeah. And that was also the year of Call Me By Your Name and Get Out. That mm -hmm. was pretty remarkable Sundance. Yeah. So, so Sundance is back let's say that sometimes it's back and EW's there and we're finally <laughs> back we're back together like chalk and cheese there you go and sunny and share <laughs> <laughs> all right when we come back uh, we'll have our awardist interview with Tom Hanks and Marielle Heller uh, from a beautiful day in the neighborhood welcome back to the awardist David you spoke to Tom Hanks I spoke to Tom Hanks <laughs> How was that for you? <laughs> it was an absolute thrill. We had a little bit trouble connecting, uh, so apologies if it doesn't sound perfect, but I think it's a great conversation. And he's just like the nicest, loveliest man. <laughs> the person you're happy to make an exception for and be like, sure, I'll just call you or you call me and we'll I figure it out. I would have done anything for Tom Hanks. Fair. And then Joey, also we have an interview. He spoke to... Director Merrill Heller. And uh, as a bonus, he also has Joanne Rogers. Amazing. Uh, on. And this is a special one because this movie did not go the distance in the award season outside of Tom Hanks and it is a special little movie and I think Meryl Heller is just such a great director and she's made three really so strong great. films and three really unique films. Um, All a little weird but like yeah. in a good way. And I think in a season that is increasingly marginalized mm -hmm. films directed by women it's always nice that we get to spotlight them and the great work they did. Take a listen. I'm David Canfield with EW's Awardist, and I'm joined now by none other than Tom Hanks. Thank you so much for joining us, Tom. Nice to be here, David, on your podcast. Absolutely. You're um, talking to us for your film, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, in which you play uh, quite an icon uh, in many ways, Fred Rogers. Uh, and watching this film, I thought about what a cynical world we live in and what a breath of fresh air it was. I imagine for you there must have been something quite appealing about playing him uh, in this era we're in. 
I don't know how I don't know how to necessarily define appealing. Uh, <laughs> I don't take jobs. Unless, I don't take jobs unless I think they're going to be going to be fascinating. I I, the, the, I I did not respond immediately to the idea of oh this this is the this is the type of movie that will be good medicine for uh, for now. Um, it really was the, just the dynamics of what I knew about the sort of like editorial comment really does come uh, as. Uh, post, I think, um, post the work that we did, uh, because there is nothing in here that is specifically meant to be aimed at any any time or, or, or era. It's just about the power of Mr. Rogers, um, and if that ends up being some some sort of, you know, uh, uh, inoculation you can get in regards to cynicism or, you know, a, a sense of divide that's going on, uh, around the world uh, all for the better but um, uh, to say that uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't lean into the aspect of it that it was like a, a uh, it was it was somehow meant to be some sort of a, some sort of a political lesson or polemic it's just about a man and his relationship um, with yeah without a doubt Mr. Icon is excuse me Mr. Rogers is a very, very specific sort of icon but he's an icon for what uh, gentleness uh, kindness uh, authenticity um, uh, 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 sharing uh, uh, and empathy well I guess that means that yeah the appeal here would be in order to make some sort of comment on where we are as a society but I think all sorts of films end up falling falling into that definition just by the nature of what their stories are that somehow honestly do make either reflect or make a comment on our times and I think down through history certain movies have done that sometimes quite by accident because I think if you're actually trying to make a comment on the way times are chances are it's it's just not going to be very interesting Hmm. When you were first announced to be playing this part, there was a sort of instant widespread reaction that you were a perfect fit for it. Uh, I guess because you do have a reputation for playing uh, rather heroic men, rather kind men, as you say. What did you make of that, or what do you make of that? Well, I think without a doubt, every actor has some sort of countenance that they come along in it. And, you know, Helen Mirren has a, has a, uh, has a sort of countenance that you want her to play a queen, which, which she's, which she's done quite a bit. Boris Karloff made a perfect Frankenstein's monster. Uh, uh, you go through, go through time. You, you, you bring into every role that you do, particularly now with the, the advent of, uh, you know, a constant, you can see any movie you want to at any time. I think everybody walks into any film carrying along with them either the uh, uh, either the baggage of every movie they've ever done, or in some cases the uh, the countenance of uh, of sort of whatever role. I, I never, I don't think of myself as being the perfect guy to play uh, Mister Rogers um, by any other dent than the, than the fact that I'm very very familiar to an awful lot of the audience out there. And it has been the case ever since home video came about. I mean, I, I babysat an awful lot of kids by way of some movies. And I've been, I've been to some degree both a, a challenging menu and sometimes comfort food to an awful lot of people out there just by the nature of the roles that quote-unquote appealed to me, David. Uh, <laughs> uh, because uh, the, uh, the, what, what, I, what I look for, uh, I wait to see. I, I can't say I actually seek these things out. 
uh, I wait until something comes across my desk that that I that I get it absolutely first blush, and it's not. It's, sometimes it's uh, the particulars of a character's challenge. I think that in the in the days when I first started t- trying to talk about your entire career. Uh, which you seem to have to now. Um, the, the, I think any theme that sort of comes out is, look, I, I, I come off as, you know, a, a guy who lives across the street um, who ends up being in some sort of big-ass struggle for his life. Hmm. Uh, extraordinary circumstances uh, for, you know, a, a pretty regular uh, kind of like dude. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a hood. I don't invoke... Uh, uh, danger. I don't think I. Uh, I don't think I scare anybody per se, um, unless they're on the journey with me emotionally. They can understand what my what the characters' motivations are and when, when they're played by me. Um, uh, that's a roundabout. That's a roundabout way of uh, of saying that uh, everything that any actor has done has, I think, has a, a, a an impact uh, previously on the. On the minds of the audience, and um, it it just it if you if you're lucky. Uh, now I'm not saying if you're if you're smart. I think that if you're lucky, um, you recognize that, and just it can be just a, a tool that you that you keep in your pocket. Am I perfect for uh, playing a, a guy like Mr. Rogers? Um, well. I'm a professional, I'll go at it full tilt, but does that mean I'm also the only guy who could play Captain Kangaroo? <laughs> <laughs> am, I, am I the only guy that uh, uh, that could play, uh, you know, any sort of uh, altruistic, um, uh, uh, sort of like, uh, um, you know, helpful psychologist kind of thing? I, I would, I would, uh, I would, uh, I would view that as as being. Uh, a circumspect claim that I that I would possibly make, and then I would probably just try to go out of my way and, and avoid avoid any sort of association with characters like that. Because at the end of the day, uh, you you are you are you are the character anyway. Period. The end. Just because you're you're cast and playing with them, I'll let other people decide. Uh, you know the quality of that casting choice. Hmm. Um, well, I was reading an interview with your director, Mariel Heller, and she mentioned that you she thought she you had passed on the movie a few times I'm wondering what brought you around to, to signing on and to playing the part well yeah, that's actually interesting David because this was never the movie that it is now uh, the, the, the I had read it it was actually being bandied about by uh, in in you know in offices and towns but the script had gone through the story had gone through really a quite a profound profound many many changes the first time I read it a long time ago, that all it was was a writing sample of the writers. I don't know that there was any filmmaker guidance that was involved in that. Uh, they themselves just kept working and working and working this kind of idea of, of the, the specifics of the journalist meets Mr. Rogers. And the journalist is not excited about doing a story on Mr. Rogers because he, uh, <clears throat> he doesn't think there's anything unique about Mr. Rogers other than whatever dark secrets he may hold. Uh, there's a bunch of different ways in order to take that on, and in the earlier, I only remember reading one version of the screenplay, but I'm going to say it was six years ago. Could have been five years ago. But, but any screenplay that goes that it lasts that the lasts that long um, is going to go through a number of changes. And I think what what Mari brought along to it was when I finally read it with her um, at her uh, uh, suggestion. 
I knew Mari. We had talked a lot. We had searched out other opportunities to work together, and, and nothing clicked. Uh, and what philosophy that she was bringing to it uh, was going to be a different DNA completely. It was like a, it was a it was a completely different movie uh, in her hands than it was when I first read it. Even down to you know the, the, the characters' names had changed, and there was all sorts of. Uh, pieces that had altered. And also, the first time you read something like that, all you're reading is a blank canvas. There's nobody to, nobody to guide you through. There's nobody to, to offer up, uh, you know, <clears throat> what the, uh, what sort of like the, the therapeutic path is going to be into what the movie actually means. Mm-hmm. And with Mari, um, there was a, there was a, there was a, there was a spiritual force behind the movie and, and it, and it, and it changed for me, uh, but it also changed very much up there. So it really just came down to when it was possible. And I, she, she had a, an opportunity to make it uh, before we actually did, uh, a year prior to it. And I, I had to confess that I cannot make, I don't have it. I, I don't have the time and nor do I have the well, wherewithal to do it in this window. But uh, in talking with her, I said, if, if you can wait until the fall, I'm your man. Um, and she had to go back and do a bunch of, cause I think they were actually scouting locations and maybe even beginning to build some things oh. um, back then. Um, and so they, they put it on hold until, uh, until the, the weeks that, uh, that I was available, which for, I'm forever indebted to her. Mm. So in terms of your conversations, how did you go about constructing this character for this particular story that she was telling and, and that this man that you wanted to portray in a particular way? Well, as with all nonfiction entertainments, of which this is, um, of which I've had some experience, you have to, uh, from from my perspective, you have to make sure that what's on the page actually represents what what was what was true. Um, that uh, there's there's not any sort of false motivations that are being put into it. And so, having I mean, the, the pages, the parts of the of the film that Mr. Rogers participates in was required really just an awful lot of looking at Mr. Rogers. I watched I watched hours and hours and hours of not just interviews with Mr. Rogers and the, the fabulous documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor, that was that was that was sensational. Um, and there was a great source of stuff that I did not know about his uh, the fact that he was an ordained minister, that uh, um, that he'd been through the seminary, that this was really his uh, uh, <clears throat> this was his Ministry, vis-a-vis, not serving in a church, but this television show, and and for a man who's an ordained minister who never once mentions the word God, I thought that was really quite profound. Then everything else in it had to come about through the vibe that was communicated through all those half-hour shows, of which I watched every one I possibly could. And once you realize that they are not meant for an adult in any way, shape, or form, that are really aimed at a particular, say, two-and-a-half to three-year-old child who's sitting on the other side of the TV screen watching it, then everything had to had to match up to what that... Um, I, I don't want to overuse the word philosophy, but it had to match up to... The, the Mr. Rogers that we were recreating had to match up to the Mr. Rogers that I saw, both... Uh, with specific answers to questions and also um, his output, uh, his creative and very motivated output of, of those television shows. Um, 
that that was uh, done. Uh, really, I mean, that, that's what that's where Mari was was shepherding the movie in the first place. And then after that comes down to some really very basic and very uh, almost deal breaker kinds of questions about how we're going to do it. Then, um, are we going to? shape a you know is there going to be a lot of prosthetics and are we going to shape the change the shape of my head are we going to do the very specific teeth that he had and that's not just a matter of artistic um, that's not just a matter of character choices or you know the, the mechanics of how we're going to make the movie that's actually saying we are going to go and recreate in every possible detail the physical aspects of Mr. Rogers because he's so familiar now there's a way you can do that um, and the, the, there's films and, and roles that require that, uh, in fact, and they do it all the time. Mari stated very, very clearly up front is that, no, we are not going to do a physical recreation of him. We're going to do sort of a, a spiritual lamentation on who the man is. There's a wig involved. There is some eyebrows involved. That's very basic. That's just, that, that's, that's, that's as detailed as hair and makeup got. Everything out there. The wardrobe, of course, I mean, that, that makes itself because it's off record. Um, and then the, the remainder is, it's like, no, we're, we're going to find an interpretation of who he was um, as opposed to, you're going to find it in the blue sneakers more than you're going to find it in a, a, a prosthetic nose. And that uh, leads up to a different sort of uh, challenge. I mean, that's that's kind of like a line that the line that you drew in the sand for me. Uh, and I said, fine, great, but then let's do that because on one hand, it liberates you because you're not going to be locked into photographs or measurements of the actual Mr. Rogers. But instead of being physical ones, they end up being physiological ones of uh, those kind of measurements. And getting to that. Uh, uh, getting to getting beginning to working on a, that was uh, be, that's something you begin immediately because you're not going to be protected by having a fake forehead. So you don't get to hide. Let me put it that way. You didn't get to hide inside, um, <clears throat> you know, a, a a neck that is glued onto my <laughs> glued onto the top of my shoulders. So um, when when that. That kind of gauntlet is thrown down, then the rest of it is other very specific physical choices that you make and, and you have to find because they don't necessarily come organically. But I will tell you this, man, you put on those pants that are baggy and, and unflattering. You wear those iconic blue sneakers and of course all of those sweaters. That's, that's, him, that's Mr. Rogers in his suit of armor. Everything else is how he actually dressed in real life. He was colorblind, you know, so he had absolutely no sense of color. So, hmm. um, nor did he have any, he didn't go, he, I don't think he ever saw a tailor in his life. He just bought everything off the rack and had it lightly altered because that, that was not what was going on. So, uh, I mean, those are the physical attributes that you have to put on and you got to test and all that. And all the rest of it ends up just kind of being a part of the, part of uh, the whatever secret formula that is required in order to get there. Hmm. I imagine another um, important element in terms of getting into character was the fact that you all filmed on the actual set that Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was filmed on and that it was recreated. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like maybe for the first time, stepping onto it and, and being that character in that space and having that awareness around you? 
of its history. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's, it was kind of like actually shooting in Vatican City, or, you know, the, the, the forbidden city in, in, in China, or Westminster Cathedral. You're, you're, you're walking into a place that is nearly holy ground, except for the people who work there. They went there every day. The folks at WQED were astonishingly great and happy that we were recreating at least part of uh, part of the set that uh, that was there and then learning how he went about he made all the shows too we, we actually had his his his, his lighting designer was still working there uh, wow. people in the offices had worked with Fred and Newland his office was right there he could go sit in his office uh, of where it was um, the, the that was it was very very special unique for them because Fred I mean that show was in Pittsburgh at WQED for an awfully long time we actually had the glockenspiel you know the little uh, ringing kind of piano key musical that uh, uh, that uh, the legendary jazz folks that came in and were and played live what he was doing uh, when we were doing it that, mm-hmm. that, it was kind of, like imagine that you you're in Liverpool and you you recreated the Cavern Club down to its most infinite detail hmm. and everybody remembers when they were going there it, it was that kind of atmosphere and that Mari went off and found those old the ikigami cameras with that odd kind of a coloring to them and we, we were incorporating them into the film and the lighting was, was literally it was the original lighting that they had. Um, that ended up that ended up being just uh, uh, another uh, another kind of atmosphere to uh, that we got to uh, wrap ourselves up in and it was wicked but, but the, an entire city of Pittsburgh was like that uh, they knew we were there, and they knew uh, Fred Rogers is, you know, there's Heinz Ketchup and there's Fred Rogers. Uh, those are the two big things that came out of Pittsburgh, along maybe with uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, the, they don't, they don't, they, they understand exactly where he stands. Fred, uh, uh, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood stands in the cultural zeitgeist. They don't overblow it, but they certainly don't. They don't dismiss it either. All of Pittsburgh knew it was a bit of a a bit of an important record that they were putting out for a city that, by and large, is known for other things. I was in an elevator um, just going back up into my room, uh, and a fellow, a Pittsburghian, was was uh, was in, and he said, "Oh, hi, oh, Mr. Hanks, are you enjoying your time?" In P- I might have told this story elsewhere. So, are you enjoying your time in Pittsburgh? And I said, "Yeah, I am." And he said, "How is the filming going?" And I said, "Well, we were just getting started, but uh, it's going pretty well." And then he said to me, uh, "You know, uh, Mr. Rogers is very important to us here in Pittsburgh." And he was deadly hmm. serious. He was not. He was sort of saying, "Hey, don't blow this. You know, yeah. don't take this and don't take this and turn it into something that it wasn't. Just so you can make an entertaining motion picture." And uh, I got it. You know, that that's what that's what Mari was setting out to do in the first place. Hmm. As I am you- being waved at by the by the crack staff here. Does that mean anything to you that they're waving at me like this? To me, no, it does not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll let, well, you can ask one more question, and then I got to go off and do other stuff. If that doesn't screw up your award-winning, fabulous podcast, oh, not award-winning yet, but hopefully soon. <laughs> well, it's the award-winning uh, issue of the podcast. Yes, so there, go along with that. Um, well, as you're speaking to these people from Pittsburgh, and you're filming on the set, uh, and, and I know you also spoke to people who knew uh, Mr. Rogers. Did it? Did the sense of responsibility increase for you? Did did you feel a certain amount of pressure to get it right? And and how did that inform um, your approach as well? 
Well, you know, that that really is a beast. And, and, and if, we, if there was something that had been going on in that, like, for example, if Mari or, or Mike or Noah had written something that we know what Mr. Rogers is really about, but we're not interested because we, we want to explore a blank aspect of it, then, then I wouldn't have been involved in it. I have done, I have played a lot of real human beings. Um, uh, seems to be coined to the realm and a lot of uh, ability to get certain films financed these days. And I, that you know, you know that as as and in your portrayal of this real of Mr. Rogers, I knew I was going to be saying things he never said. I was going to be places he never was. I was going to do things he probably never really did. Or if we're offering him up as some sort of factor, it's more like a pastiche or a nod towards it, as opposed to really getting into it. Um, that uh, uh, that is the truth, but there has to be uh, there has to be a uh, uh, the mission statement needs to be needs to be to be as accurate as possible. And accurate's not really the best word. Accurate physically, sure. Accurate, um, you know, in the look and the uh, um, in the art direction, sure, you can do that. But you also have to be accurate to to the spirituality of what the story is. And that goes whether it's, you know, talking about Sully Sullenberger or Charlie Wilson or Jim Lovell or, or, or Richard Phillips, some of the people I played. And on least those folks, I actually got to sit down and actually talk to them and explain what the process for this was going to be. Part of it is please don't hate us because we don't have all of our nomenclature absolutely correct or we, we show you having, you know, eating tacos and you didn't eat and you never ate tacos. You can get past that uh, provided that what you're setting out to do is going to be based, not just based on um, <clears throat> facts or history or the truth, but actually governed by them. And there are some things that you must, you must adhere to. Otherwise, call it something else. Don't call it Mr. Rogers. Call him, you know, Johnny Bimbo and Johnny Bimbo's Cartoon Circus. You can make a movie called that if you want to, and you might be able to touch on some of the same themes. Um, uh, but if you're going to call it Mr. Rogers, and it's going to be called a beautiful day in the neighborhood, there's some things that you must absolutely get right. And you not only have to get them right, you got to pay fealty to those things. And in our film, part of it was the relationship that he had, that he had with Joanne, uh, the nature of what uh, his other life was. And I think the paying attention to some of Mr. Rogers' own self-defense mechanisms that he himself used all the time. So he just doesn't come off as some benevolent saint um, that has an, uh, a, a glow of aura to it that it comes out of some sort of like magical possession that he has, as opposed to really the way he chose to live his life uh, every single day. So you gotta get there, otherwise um, you're making some other film that I don't think would nearly be as one interesting or uh, possibly enlightening as well. Hmm. Well, I think you certainly do, Mr. Rogers, justice. Thank you so much for joining us, Mr. Hanks. Hey, happy to do it. Nice talking to you. Good luck with your podcast. All right. So I want to start by asking you both. I mean, I know that authenticity was such an important thing in this film um, and personal items from your collection, um, things that belong to you and Fred are in the film, um, ties, the banana painting. Um, so was that always the goal to sort of use real things or no no i don't think we presumed we would use anything real our art we thought we would recreate the set and do it as authentically as possible but what happened was we came to pittsburgh and we became so close with 
Joanne and with all of the people who knew Fred in a way that they just were so generous with us. We never would have expected that. And it, it was more almost a fun private thing for us to know that Tom was wearing all of Fred's real ties yeah. or that yeah. we had that banana painting in the back of that scene. <laughs> that, that was just um, that, special. Do you know the, you know the story? I don't know the story, the no. Fred's sister painted the bananas, the three bananas, and it came from a time when they were all spending time in Nantucket. And Fred, I think I had, I had gone home or hadn't arrived yet, and he was all by himself there, writing. And uh, he hated to go to the grocery store. <laughs> so they, he would look out, and he'd, so he would see his sister and her husband getting ready to go into town. So he would just come out and call to them, and they'd say, what do you need? He'd say, Three bananas small. <laughs> <laughs> and so she painted him those yeah. three bananas. <laughs> was it always your intention to sort of, when you knew this film was happening, to, to lend things to the production? Or did that happen? Was it like a spur-of-the-moment thing? The costume designer, yes. Arjun. Yes. You Just, became close with Arjun. Oh, yes. I loved Arjun. He came over and met Joanne. I wouldn't Joanne. Have him anything. <laughs> That's the truth of the matter. Just take, take anything you want. That's anything. the truth, and Arjun has that effect on people. Well, why was it so important for you to, to have real items in the film? Was it just, were you well, thinking about I, it that much? Or? It, I thought it was important to them. And so, it, so I said, oh my goodness, that's wonderful. Yes, take, you know, look around, take. Well, you said, you said something to Arjun. Arjun told me that you said, I have all of these clothes. I don't know what to do with them. Yes, it's true. It's like, it's I can't true. get rid of them, but I've got all of Fred's clothes here, so please go look. Uh, to be candid, we were, Bill said, don't, you know, don't give them to any, uh, any charity right now because... People will get a hold of them, they'll know who they belong to, they'll sell them. Mm. Yeah. And, and I, that didn't appeal to me. Mm. Yeah, I so get that. So. Well, how do you think, in addition to those items, having Joanne with you in this process enhanced or, or changed the film in any way? I mean, for us, we wanted, we wanted to show not just facts about Fred Rogers, not just this is what he did, this is how he lived, this is how the show was made, we, we were hoping to show a deeper version of him that was sort of the experience of Fred, and that meant for us we needed to feel like we knew him. And the closest we could come to feeling like we knew him was getting to know people like Joanne and getting to hear stories and just spending time with Joanne and Bill and hearing what they laugh about and what their private jokes were and, and, and absorbing... Yes, all the facts and going to Latrobe and seeing things and understanding how the program was made and all of those things, but it was more just trying to feel Fred in a bigger way and understand what what your daily life was like. And fortunately, I don't know, we're just all warm people. Yeah. Oh, no. And I mean, so it was, we just hit it off. Yeah. We did. We hit it off. I had hit it off with Peter and... and, yeah. and Whoever's a friend of Peter's is a friend of mine. You yeah. know? Uh, I was so moved by our first meeting, and we spent hours chatting the first time we met, and it just felt like 
I, I was just blown away by how open you guys were and how much, and I think it was because you had gotten to know Peter over many years and Noah and Micah, and they, you trusted them. Oh, so absolutely. if they trusted me, there was sort of this, it was just a really nice, it yeah. It is. It is, yeah. Had you been approached before to about um, collaborating with somebody on a scripted movie about, because I know there was the documentary, but had, was this the first time you were approached about? Yes. A, I mean, I don't know really. It was first time I was I was personally. It probably has to go past a lot of people have, before it, it gets to, to Joanne. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Sometimes people just do things on their own. Right. There are things that they don't approve that happen. Okay. Yeah. Well, I know that. I mean, this film—it's just—it's such a warm film, and it—it it touches me so much. And um, I know it's going to make a lot of people very happy. But I also found myself thinking last night that there's an element of sadness to it because I think the goodness of somebody like Fred, it's its no longer here. And it made me a little bit upset, you know, thinking about it. So I'm wondering for you if that, what that process is well, like for you. the goodness is there. Mm -hmm. I do think the goodness is there. I So, I mean, that's my hope. I think there are Fred Rogerses out there. And Fred's uh, just, uh, we're just lucky. I, I you know, I, I'm just so grateful for Fred's sake because he did care so much about his philosophy. He did care a great deal about it. And that such special people have come along who feel the way he felt. And that's really, I, I find things providential sometimes. And uh, this seems like one of them to me, very strong. Was it always your plan to have Joanne be in that scene? No, I can't remember when we figured out we were going to put you in that Chinese restaurant <laughs> well, scene. there were a bunch of us. All there were a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Bill Eisler, yep. Marty Eisler, Hedda, Margie. Mr. McFeely. Mr. McFeely. Mm -hmm. yeah. Fred's nephew, your nephew. Yes, my, uh, there was Rick who's a cousin. Yep. And, and Dan wasn't here, but yes. Just like a reunion of sorts in that scene. Well, the scene is, to not, not to give it away too much, but the mm -hmm. scene is about who loved you into being. So it only made sense that we took that scene and we surrounded it with Fred's and everybody, loved ones. Everybody really appreciated that so much. Um, I remember Peter saying, how, how, what would you think about sneaking into Tom's movie? <laughs> is that what he said? <laughs> That's a very good way to put it. That is yeah. hilarious. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was, I think it might have been Peter's idea, actually, and it just made perfect sense. But that day was a stressful day. Not for us. No. <laughs> yeah. We were having fun. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. what was it like for you being on the, on the set? Just great fun. But also, it, it gets long, right? A little boring. Well, but then we had this group who, a lot of them I hadn't seen for a long time. Yeah. We went to a room to, while you were working on something else. And we just had a wonderful visit. Oh, good. Uh, it was great. It was oh, good. Great. I love no that. No at all. It was my birthday, too. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I just remembered when I looked back at pictures, because there's a picture of... Maybe. <laughs> I think, you know, part of why... It was a stressful day, because we were moving and doing scenes in a few locations, which is always harder. Yeah. But I also remember feeling, you know... Having you all there was so exciting, but it also made me aware I wanted to make sure we were doing it right. 
and I was learning things with they had the camera on on a train a train tracks. Yeah. A jolly track. <laughs> yeah. I'd never seen that before. Yeah. So what, that was a bit nerve wracking for you having it everybody was on nerve wracking. I mean we had become close at that point, but then watching people watch you work and, and I was so aware because it was one of the first days with Tom. Mm. And so I was aware that everyone was watching his performance and I wanted to make sure. I might have been having a hard time focusing on the multitude yeah, of things I was concentrating and worrying about, which is the job of a director. You have to worry about everything at all times. But I was particularly worrying in that moment about um, all of those multi-layers of whether you were all feeling like we were getting it right. You know, I, I was always, uh, from, from the beginning, I guess I, I didn't know what the personality of a director would be. That I thought it would be much more fast and, and not, not much heart to it. And um, Mari is just the kindest person. I mean, everything she asks people to do, she does it in the kindest way. And I'm just such a fan. Mm. And, and I, maybe that's a that's a woman's touch that I want. <laughs> Perhaps, probably, what you have in your head—that stereotype of a director is some some male masculine <laughs> yes. yelling director sounds, sounds like it with a the one I said, yeah. the one I who's up on the seat with cameras in front mm -hmm. of him. Yeah. Well, you we did talked about. You did tell me that um, you sort of felt like you had Fred's perspective in your mind for like the two years that you spent with this so yeah, that I, makes sense that you had like a kind I warmer felt approach. like I wanted to be embodying what we were learning mm -hmm. while we were making this movie for sure and that meant treating everybody with I mean I think I tried to do that before this movie as well I don't want to say that was something I had never thought of before because I think as the director of a movie so much of what I'm trying to do is set the tone from the onset for a place where actors can really do difficult work and I can ask them to go deep and to be vulnerable and they have to feel safe in order to do that and I just don't believe in this idea that in order to get great art you, everyone has to suffer and be miserable <laughs> or be screamed at. It's just not, I, I don't believe it's true. I think it's a totally outdated way of thinking about how you get, you know, and every time I hear a story, a glorified story about some film set when somebody threw a huge fit and screamed at somebody or treated people inhumanely, I think, well, that's not, nothing about that is good. And we shouldn't be glorifying this idea that somehow real artists um, have to suffer and treat everybody terribly in order to do some great work. Real artists just have to live. Yeah. Well, did you, because the film is about, in a lot of ways, it's a meditation on rage and what we can do with rage. And I think that yes. that was an interesting emotion to, to sort of hone in on in this. Um, so do you think that that was, because um, I think this movie is not going to be what a lot of people are expecting in a really good way. And I think, do you think that was maybe a risky way to find your way into the story through a man's rage that is sort of softened by Mr. Rogers? Well, I felt like part of what appealed to me so much about this story and the way that we, the script was approaching this story was it was showing different versions of masculinity that I don't feel like we get to see on screen mm -hmm. very often. 
and it was dissecting rage, anger, things that we we don't give a lot of ways to process and it feels very present. I think we're living in a time where we feel like rage, anger, violence, particularly from men, is pretty present in our life. And um, what Fred aimed to do was to give every child language for their emotions, ways to process their emotions. What do you do with the mad that you feel? I mean, that as a philosophy, as a bigger thesis for this movie, a lot of adults don't have those tools. And um, perhaps if we had ways to process our rage, perhaps if we were able to be more honest about our feelings, perhaps if we saw versions of men who are processing rage, who are finding ways through rage, who are working through versions of what it is to be a man. And one of the things that Tom Juno and I have been talking about today is that, you know, his father had only given him really one version of what a man could be. And Fred presented another version. Well, do you, do you specifically remember Fred talking about those things um, that Tom was telling him um, throughout? Because I know this is based on the, the real story. Do you remember what Fred might have said about those about things? Tom about Juneau. Yeah, that, that might have touched him about the things Tom was going through? Um, he, he did not share that. That was between him and Tom. Uh, the only thing he shared was, you know, I, I had met Tom and liked him. Uh, he was very, very interesting to me, and um, he didn't talk much about his writing. Uh, but, I, but I just remember uh, a very, very pleasant man to be with, and and it was altogether fine. I, I, but Fred did not share later later things with them. Mm. I didn't know what was going. And I knew I knew that they that the real Tom Janot and his wife were very much wanting a baby. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the timing is different in the movie than okay. in reality. All right. and, uh, but this has been sort of a theme we've seen too, which was that, you know, Noah and Micah, the writers, told me when they started that they they went to you and they asked, did Tom share with you, you know, when people would share with him and pile all of their problems onto him or give him, pour their hearts out to him, would yeah. he go to you and you'd say, you know, no, he didn't, maybe ask Bill. And then he went. they went to Bill and said, you know, did he share with you, did he... Were you the per and Bill would say, no, maybe ask Joanne. Uh, and other people would say, you know, that, that, that what I took away from that, and you tell me if you think this is true, I took away this idea that Fred held people's stories, that there was a almost, um, almost like a priest takes confession. Absolutely. That he, I mean, it, it, you know, first and foremost, he was a minister. Mm -hmm. That and he that's, held, that's that what he they're held supposed it. to do. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. Yes, and he did. And and oftentimes uh, I would hear something, and I and I would come up. I think it was. Yeah. Oh yes, he said I did hear about that. Never, never, never told me. And he said one time said, I just don't want to burden you with with things that that I feel are uh, confidential. Mm -hmm. One thing that I didn't know 
and I'm not sure if it's real or not, is the dueling pianos. Did you guys actually do things like that at home? We did. Yeah? We did. Uh, that was my thing. And I had a, I was part of a two-piano team. So, so sometimes I'd be learning something. I'd say, come here and play this other part, you know? And they really did have two pianos yeah, next to each that's other. That's what I mean, yeah. The, mm -hmm. They had to have two pianos next to each other. And Joanne told me when I visited her at her house that when Fred passed away, they had to take his piano out the window, actually. Oh, God. Wow. I, I wanted this Rogers Center out in Latrobe to have it. Yeah. And, uh, and but I the was, piece that we picked for that, you said you guys wouldn't have played. I, I remember you visited on well, set that we day. We didn't actually play, but I knew it. You knew it. Knew it was a very hard piece. It was a duet, yeah. actually, yes. I think. Yes, it is a duet. And uh, for, that means one piano uh, with two people. Mm -hmm. uh, and Marianne Plunkett it Who plays, play, Joanne. plays the piano. And I made her learn that piece, which <laughs> yes. was very hard. Yes, it was very hard. And she, she didn't get up to the speed of it. It was really fast. Yes, it was fast. So that they had a recording, and they showed her most of the time because I don't think Tom was really. I mean, he was that bad for the geeks. I I positioned the entire was, cameras so we could see Marianne's hands and not Tom's. I'll, I'll bet Nate liked that piece. Though. Nate picked it. Nate oh, helped yeah, pick I, it. Yeah, I liked it. Um, it was yeah, I yeah. loved it, and it plays so well in the scene. Yeah. And yes, my favorite does. moment of the scene is when Marianne goes. Turn. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. I just have one last question for you, Joanne. Um, I know that you've talked a lot about Tom's performance and, and what you think of Tom's performance, but I'm wondering the first time you saw him in character as your husband, what was running through your mind when you actually saw him for the first time and not performing, not anything like that, but just when you saw him? Well, I think I, I, think I gasped. I just went, oh. <laughs> it looked so much like Fred, just right, first thing. And then I, I just remember saying, oh, it's tough. Well, in our But in the movie, you don't think about it too much, not hardly at all. Yeah. He just, he just goes into the part, just disappears. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. One of the first meetings, I was there when Joanne and Tom met, and she told him, you know, you were my husband's favorite actor. And none of us knew that at that moment. And you said that to him, and he kind of, I remember seeing Tom's <laughs> eyes kind of go wide, and him saying, really? And, um, I remember he said, that's all he needed. <laughs> yeah, he said it was a lot of pressure. He went, that's all I needed to hear. Well, now we know they're related, apparently. Oh, yeah, this whole um, news about the Beat Six is hilarious. That's crazy. Oh, too weird, too weird. <laughs> I know. All right. Well, they're going to kill me because I feel like I've gone over time. No but, worries. Um, I, I really appreciate it. It was such an honor to meet you. And you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for your time and always being so, so kind. So nice to finally um, meet Yeah, finally. All right. That's our show. Thank you, JD, for joining us today. Thank you, David, for coming so prepared to talk about all of these things and, and for having had the privilege and the pleasure of speaking to Tom Hanks. Oh, always a pleasure. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> Thank you to Joey Nolfi for contributing uh, that additional interview to Lauren Huff for doing research and helping make sure we all show up on time as <laughs> usual. Um, and to everyone at EW.com who did an outstanding job of covering the SAG Awards and has been 
in the mix in everything we're doing. We have a great list of Grammy predictions um, that you can check out on EW.com for that. And then we will be back to talk about what those last moments of thinking about what's going to happen with the Oscars. We're almost there. We're almost there. We're getting there. Uh, you can always find complete coverage on EW.com slash awardist in the magazine. Please subscribe, like us, rate us, tell us what you think, leave us a comment. David, where can people find you? On Twitter, David Canfield 97 And I'm at Shana Naomi. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us. This has been The Awardist on EW. <laughs>